0: these things. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Or if you ever hear anyone from Europe preach, it will be Isaiah. But I grew up in middle America, so it's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. This morning we return to our series on the story of God's work of redemption. The series called According to Plan is designed so that we can see the outworking of God's plan throughout history all according to His sovereign At the very beginning of this series, the very beginning of the Bible, the, the outworking of God's plan, we see Him creating everything for His own good pleasure, all of the universe being a theater in which His glory may be put on display. And yet the very crown of His creation, us, human beings, we rebel against Him. In sin, we turn away from God's grace, from His instruction, from His provision, and we try to live life by our own wisdom. We try to live life not by faith in Him, but by faith in ourselves. The result of this folly is a larger curse of sin brought into all of God's once good creation. But even from the very moment of that first sin, even from through the condemnation that came because of that sin, God held out a glimmer of hope. He promised a work of salvation, rescuing sinners from His wrath. And in various ways throughout history, He has done this, displaying mercy to sinners while pointing forward to the ultimate display of His saving grace through Jesus Christ. These displays of God's mercy and grace, His saving acts, come most clearly through His covenant people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. They were created as God chose Abraham out of a life of paganism to serve him, the living God. He promised him a son and through that son, uh, a great family that would result in a great nation uh, through which God would allow Abraham to be a great blessing to all the nations of the earth. And through the fulfillment of those promises, Abraham did receive his son. That son had another son who had sons, and that small family clan grew into the nation of Israel. God again displayed His mercy and His saving grace by rescuing them first from destruction by famine, and then by rescuing, rescuing them out of enslavement in Egypt. Israel saw all of God's mighty works and pledged to be His people, entering into a special covenant relationship with them, with Him, a promise whereby they said, you will be our God and we will be your people to worship and serve you as you desire. But in the end, Israel failed. They failed to keep their covenant promises. They failed to be the servant that God desired them to be. And we've seen this throughout the series as we track through the, the, the historical books and even into the prophetic books, we have seen that they continue to fall further and further into sin, worshiping false gods, eventually even allowing themselves to be split into two nations. All this, of course, violated the covenant promises that God had made to him and they had made in response. And despite repeated warnings, God said, you need to understand that unless you repent, unless you turn back to me, unless you look to me in faithfulness and love, the covenant curses that I promised would come, will come as a sign of judgment on you for your sins. And it's here that we see God perhaps at his greatest in terms of the mercy that he has shown. For while Israel deserves to be completely wiped off the face of the earth, he says, even in judgment, I will save a remnant. I will save my small, faithful people who exist in the midst of that sinful generation. I will preserve them and show mercy to them. This brings us to the book of Isaiah that we're going to look at this morning. If Romans is the high point of the New Testament, revealing the sweep of God's plan like no other, then Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. To begin with, its size alone makes it stand above all others as it clocks in at 66 chapters, the largest of any of the books of the Bible. Throughout the book, God himself is exalted. He is shown to be exalted over all things, not just Israel, but all things. In Isaiah, God is held up as the Holy One of Israel, sovereign over all things, who does all things for His sake. He alone is the creator of all things and deserves the worship of all peoples everywhere. His wrath against sin is fierce, yet His salvation comes with grace to those who humble themselves and repent. More than anything else, Isaiah shows us the the Holy God who still saves sinners. The question though for the people of Israel as they are reading, as they're receiving the benefit of Isaiah's preaching throughout four kings, four ruling kings, the question they have to ask themselves is this, will they turn from their sin and be saved or will they become the servants that God calls them to be? And frankly, that's the the same question that we have to ask ourselves today. We will not face the kind of judgment that Israel faced. We operate under two different kinds of covenants. As God's people, we will not face that kind of judgment. Nevertheless, our sin can still make us ineffective. As we said many, many months ago, we can be like that wilderness generation. God did not disown them. He didn't say, you're no longer my people. But He just allowed them to walk around useless for 40 years until they all died out. Is that that how we will be remembered? As the useless generation of God's people who just sat in our church and did things the way we've always done them and sang great songs and read the Bible, but never served the Lord as he desired us to because we still cherish sin in our hearts. That's the question that faced Israel. That's the the question that faced us. And the answer to those questions comes in Isaiah's call in chapter six. This is the passage we want to look at this morning. Please follow along as I read the word of God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be turned and be healed." And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. This is the word of God. After five chapters of woes, that is five chapters of pronouncements of judgment upon the nation of Israel, Isaiah pronounces now a woe on himself. Though placed a few chapters in, what we have here is Isaiah's initial call into prophetic ministry. But it comes here back in chapter 6 rather in chapter 1 after the initial woes because it's not only Isaiah's call, but it's Israel's hope. If they will experience what Isaiah experienced, then they will be able to again serve the Lord as He has called them to. Likewise for us today, even under the new covenant in Christ, how will we serve the Lord? It's by going through the same kind of experience that Isaiah himself goes through here. Just as with Israel, if we are to serve serve God the way we should, then we have to experience a similar, similar encounter with the Holy God who saves sinners. There are four parts to this encounter that Isaiah experienced that we need to experience today. And I want to walk through these things as we look through Isaiah 6. First, first, if we are to become the servants that God wants us to, we need to see a clear vision of God's glory. We need to see a clear vision of God's glory. Now, when we read, when we read the Old Testament, we read, no one may see the Lord and live. That's exactly what God himself said to Moses. And yet in the Bible, at different times, we see like in our Text here, it says Isaiah or so-and-so saw the Lord. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this a contradiction? Is the Bible contradicting itself? The answer is no. Because in each case where it says someone saw the Lord, we have the ancient equivalent of a footnote saying they saw the Lord, but they didn't really see the Lord. They got a glimpse of God, but they didn't really see him face to face in all of his glory. And so here Isaiah says that he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord, but what does he describe? Did he describe the Lord blazing in glory? Does he describe, as John does, the risen Christ, the, the fire burning in his eyes and the glow of his skin? No, what does he say? I saw the hem of his robe in the temple. So whether, whether it's because of his own wisdom, he knows, I dare not gaze the face of God, or whether it's because God himself preserves him and keeps his face low. Isaiah does not glimpse into the full glory of God, or else what God had previously would come true, he would not have been able to stand. As we walk through the same vision, though, what we see what we see is still a powerful glimpse of the glory of God. Frankly, in order for Isaiah to be changed, in order for him to encounter God and walk away a changed man, he did not need to glimpse into the full glory of the Lord. He did not need to stare into the fullness of his glory and majesty and might. He just needed a glimpse of it, as if looking at the the bare hem of the robe of the Lord as we look at this vision, essentially we see two aspects of God's glorious character that are presented to us. First, we see the glory of God's sovereignty, the glory of His sovereignty. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Now, it's not without purpose this vision comes in the same year that Uzziah died. Yes, that is a temporal marker. It helps you to know the chronology of what's happening, but don't think it's just that. There is greater significance here. And part of understanding that significance, we have to know the history. Did, I don't know if you did or not, but if when we preached through 1 and 2 Chronicles, if you who read through that, Uzziah would, would click over in your mind because he's talked about it all throughout there. And what we see is that Uzziah is a pretty decent king. For the most part, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty good leader for the people of Israel. He defeated the Philistines, and he worked very hard at building up God's people both spiritually and economically. The problem was he got prideful in the end. He got prideful in the end, and he tried to do what only the priest could do, offer incense in the temple. And before he could commit this transgression of the law, God struck him down with leprosy. Now, what's the problem with leprosy? The problem with leprosy for the king meant this. He is removed from the kingdom now. The king cannot sit in the royal palace. The king cannot sit on the royal throne. And in fact, he's not even the full king. There is someone who reigns as a co-regent with him one of his younger relatives who actually sits on the throne in Israel while he confers and sends orders through him. And now this dethroned king finally passes away. Not only is the the last vestige of spiritual leadership seen in Israel gone, meaning the floodgates for their sin are now open and total, there is a physical enemy in Assyria right across the border and now they are like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherd is gone. What are they going to do? The reality is their trust had been lying in King Uzziah. Even I dare say Isaiah's own trust had been in seeing the son of David sitting on the throne thinking we have a leader in Israel and now he's gone. And it's here when Uzziah is no longer on the throne that Isaiah sees the Lord is still on his throne. Though the human sovereign pass away, the ultimate and final and supreme sovereign has not gone away. And in fact, still stands not just over Israel, but exalted so that His glory shines over all of the earth. You see, the God is, the God is not just a God of a tiny country off in the Middle East. He is God over all creation. He is sovereign over all things. And that message is hammered home again and again and again throughout Isaiah. So in chapter 14 we read this The Lord of hosts has sworn, I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so it so it shall stand. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? And again Isaiah forty-five, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. that's That's a stumbling verse right there for many people. Because God is saying, if it happens in creation... I have brought it about from good and bad and everything in between. I am the absolute sovereign. He says, even if you don't know me, I am the one that has raised you up and I am the one who has given you life. And I've done this so that one day all will know I am the Lord. The human king has died, and God wants Isaiah, He wants Israel to know that not just them, but every nation, every people, every event from the very beginning of creation to the end of all things runs under the sway of the Lord God's sovereign hand. Now, we think about that reality. We think about what that would have meant for Isaiah and for Israel. We have to think about what that means for us. It forces us to ask the question, where do we put our confidence? Where do we put our trust? On, on a day like this, it's very easy. Gather with God's people say, Well, I trust in the Lord, right? We've pretty much sung that this morning. But on Monday morning, when the test results come back and it's cancer, where's your trust? Where's your confidence? When you lose your job, where's your trust? Where is your confidence? When your house floods, where is your trust? Where is your confidence? When we have a ruler who is no good in our country or we have one that's almost too good in our country, either one, where is your trust and confidence? Is it in the things of this world that you can see? Is it in your pocketbook that you can pull out and think we'll take care of everything? Or does your trust lie with the God who holds everything in his sovereign hand? You know, Spurgeon used to say that when you you came into the room, and the lights were not on, but the sun was coming in, and you saw all those dust particles swaying in the room. And if it's like, my, my family, we go in, and we like to bat around the dust particles, and the, and the, you know, uh, at least me with the, with the little kids, not by myself, too often. And, and Spurgeon would say, there is not one molecule of that dust moving about in its course that God has not set in its place. He say, where does he get that from? He gets that from Proverbs, where it says, the, the dye is cast in the lap but every decision is from the Lord. You think about the most random thing we can imagine, sitting down, playing Monopoly, throwing a dice, and the Bible says how those dice come out is determined by Almighty God. That's a sovereign Lord. And that sovereignty is presented so that you can say, I need not fear anything, I need not trust anything, but in God and God alone. More than that, though, we are shown the glory of His holiness. The glory of His holiness. Isaiah sees the exalted sovereign Lord and goes on to say, Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. And with two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the the house was filled with smoke. Now this afternoon or sometime this week, you go across the river into Bay City. You will find an interesting little shop that's all about angels. Angels, 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 angels. The whole thing's about angels. They got figurines, they got posters, they got books. If it's about angels, they got it in there. In fact, I didn't even know this. Did you know this? You can go in there. and There's angel cards, and you can have angel card readings. You'll know what well, you can know what the angels want you to know, right? Okay. Now you know if you've not been around the Bible long, you have to understand that that's not angels. Okay? Angels only want you to know one thing and one thing alone. Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord of all things. Amen. That He is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord of hosts. That the whole earth is full of His glory. So when you go in there, when you go into Kroger or Meyer or wherever you shop and you see those, those angel books and those posters, and they're either supermodels with flowing robes and wings or chubby little babies with divine diapers and harps, that's not angelic beings, Okay? It's so wrong. It's not even close. What does the Bible show here? These angels that surround the throne are the Seraphim. They are powerful, glorious angelic beings, so much so that when they themselves speak, the threshold of the temple shakes. It thunders. How much more so if they surround the Holy God? These beings, their description, symbolic of the wings and, the, and everything. They cover their eyes, their feet, and they fly. It is symbolic of humility and the honor that is given in the presence of a holy God. They are hovering about, ready to go and execute His will at any moment's notice. And in the meantime, what do they do? While they're waiting for a command from their creator, they worship Him. Isaiah says, they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. What does it mean for God to be holy? What does it mean for him to be holy, holy, holy? We often think of moral purity, and that's certainly part of it. But but it's not just morally pure, morally pure, morally pure is the Lord God Almighty. It is more than that. And we've talked about this before. Whenever whenever holy, the word holy is used of God, is as close to an adjective for God that we have in the Bible. More than anything else, God is described as holy. For God to be holy means that he exists in all of his godness. Whatever it means to be God, He has it in fullness in its totality. And so saying holy, holy, holy is the Hebrew way of saying He's not only God, He is the most God being of all. He is the holiest of all. He is the Lord and there is no other. This is the vision that Isaiah has seen of God. It is of God that is of the sovereign Lord of all things and the God who exists in perfect, glorious holiness. And here's the thing if we try and set out in ministry, if we try to set out and serve God and this is not the vision we have of Him, then we'll fail. We'll fail. Why, you say? Number one, because we can refuse Him. We can say, no, God, I don't want to do that. That's not going to work for me. That doesn't fit my daytimer or my PDA or my online calendar. I don't have time for that. I've not yet friended you on Facebook, so I don't really want to... You know, I'm not ready to get that close but if He's the sovereign Lord of all things, if He is the most holy being in the universe, there is no saying no to Him. They're saying, God, this looks difficult. This looks so overwhelming. I don't know what to do, but you have called me to it. Therefore, I will do it. I will serve you because you are the sovereign. You are the most holy being in all the universe, and I am simply your creation. This is why we need a clear vision of the holy God. We need a clear vision of a sovereign God. We need a clear vision of God and all his glory because if we don't have that, we will not be prepared to serve the Lord the way he wants us to. But in seeing this kind of a vision, then we will also come to where Isaiah comes to. We will come to have a deep awareness and confession of sin. A deep awareness and confession of sin. Isaiah sees this vision of the sovereign holy God. He sees the mighty seraphim giving homage to God in worship. He sees the smoking fury and feels the rumbling power of being in God's presence. And what does he say? That's cool. No. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As we said earlier, the first five chapters are all about Isaiah pronouncing woes of judgment on the people of Israel. He, he woes the capital city of Jerusalem, the, 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 the pinnacle, the example of what Israel, Israelite life was supposed to be like. And then he goes targeting specific groups and specific kinds of sinners, saying, woe to you, judgment is coming, and woe to you and judgment is coming, and woe upon you for judgment is coming. But now after seeing the glory of a holy God, he can only pronounce woe on himself. In that context, along with the worship song of the seraphim, we can see that this fear, this fear is not just about Isaiah as a human being, being in the presence of the divine being. It's more than that. This is the fear of a human being full of the moral equivalent of a sack of garbage standing before the most holy being in the universe. He is a sinful man standing in the presence of a holy God. Now remember who Isaiah is. Unlike most people, Isaiah is a loyal, devout Jew. He loves the Lord. He wants to serve Him. And in many ways, he is like ministers of today. And yet, not only in his position, but also for ministers today, he runs the risk of not being aware of his sin like he should. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is this when you're trying to walk with the Lord as you should, when there aren't any obvious sins that are out there, you love your family, you treat them well, you're studying hard to prepare messages to proclaim to God's people, you're not wasting away your finances, you're seeking to pray often, when things are going okay, then perhaps you would never say it, but in the back of your mind there's a tendency to think you're not all that bad. You're doing better than lots of other people. So you must be okay. And it's then and there that you need what Isaiah had. You need a time of seeing the dip, the deep, magnificent glory of the Lord because the more that that glory shines on you, the more you become aware of the garbage that's really inside. It's in the presence of God's holiness that you begin to see just how sinful you really are. And for the minister, it's a sweet event because you've been drawn all the near to God, but in the process, all of your inadequacies are no longer hidden. You can't fool God. You may fool other people, but you're not fooling God. Suddenly, you're all the more aware of your faults and your sins, and you feel as if you should never preach again. You stand on preparing on a Saturday night and and you've been brought low by God and you wake up on Sunday and you think to yourself, how in the world can I get in that pulpit? How can I tell them what God says when I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips? This is... The dilemma of Isaiah, the very thing that he would have been known for, the use of his lips in speaking for God, the very thing that he could have felt good about. This was his calling, his ministry, and now it is the epitome of his sinfulness. Even his best is sinful before a holy God. And so now he knows firsthand what he would preach towards the end of his book. We all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is exactly what Israel needed but didn't have. A deep awareness of their sin that led to a sincere confession of sin. Imagine every single year Year after year going up and offering the sacrifices for the day of atonement. Watching the rituals, watching the priest offer something for himself. Then ritually stand in your place and offer a sacrifice for you. Seeing the scapegoat being let out. All of it, all of it, all of it. And never being aware of your sin. Imagine growing up an Israelite going to, to, to gather together to hear teachings of Torah, of the law, perhaps even being taught to memorize parts of the law, like the Shema passage from Deuteronomy 6. And yet, when you're, when you're out doing life, your parents teach you that, yeah, we don't really keep that law, though. We talk about it a lot. We, we say it to one another. We go do the things that we're supposed to, but it doesn't really matter. You don't really have to live that way. Here was Israel, supposedly the holy, the, the holy people of a holy God who regularly engaged in idolatry and sexual immorality and prideful arrogance, abuse of power, callousness towards the poor, the weak, and oh, so many other sins. They have become so bad that God calls them Sodom and Gomorrah in the opening chapters of this book. And all the while, they continue to worship God as if there's nothing wrong. As if we just offer the sacrifices, it will be Okay. And God reaches the point where he says, enough, enough of the bulls, enough of the goats, enough of the pigeons. It stinks. It's odious to me because you think that's just going to make it all better. And no, it won't come with, with a sincerity, a contrition, a true sense of repentance when you offer the sacrifice. Don't come brazen about your sin thinking if I just give the animal, everything will be fine. What about us? Do we come on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights thinking, oh, I'll just come and I'll show up to church and everything will be fine. And that's our attitude. Then God says, stop singing because it stinks. Stop giving money because I don't like it. Your money stinks. Don't come and worship me and think that's going to make your sin during the week okay because it's not. It's not. Now, how do we get to the point where we can genuinely see our sin for what it is and genuinely repent of our sin, to come like Isaiah, to see our sin not in terms of degrees, comparing ourselves to one another, but to realize I am just as much a sinner, a man who sins with his lips in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Isaiah is proclaiming to a people this this confrontational message about their sin. At the same time, now deep in his heart he knows, I am just like one one of them. How does he come to that? It's by first seeing the vision of the Holy God. If you don't come to grips with who God is, you're never going to come to grips with your sin. But when you do see God for who He is, when you do come to grips with your sin, then like Isaiah, you can expect to experience a divine cleansing from sin. We need to experience a divine cleansing from sin. The presence of the Holy God has caused Isaiah to feel the weight of his own sin, but now he experiences grace from God. I always think it's revealing that Isaiah makes no plea before God. He admits his sin and that's it. He's done. He says nothing else until the end of this. I think that's revealing because it's not like us, is it? We have our sins pointed out to us and the first thing we do is defend ourselves. Perhaps we're reading the scriptures. We read across something and we, boom! The Holy Spirit knocks me in the eyes. That's you, you're sinning. And what do we do? No one else is around so we start convincing ourselves. Well, but given the circumstances, I mean, that, that, that just, you know, that made it okay. I know we shouldn't do it, but it was okay here. Sometimes people will confront us with and They'll say, you know, this is not the right attitude. And pff, the walls go up. The defenses go up. Shields at maximum. And we are not letting them in. No. No, I, this is, don't, don't talk to me about that. This is fine. This is not a problem. It's not wrong for me to act this way. And Isaiah does nothing of that because he's truly come to understand who he is in light of a holy God. I think probably Isaiah is pronouncing a will on himself because he fully expects God to wipe him out right there. He fully expects to, for his, his, his flesh to be completely disintegrated by the presence of a holy God and the judgment that he deserves. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Isaiah says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my lips and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God has not revealed himself to wipe out Isaiah in judgment. Instead, he has revealed himself in order to reveal his grace. Isaiah gets what he doesn't deserve that's the essence of grace. Isaiah gets God's forgiveness. And this is what both humbles us and strengthens us to serve God. When we experience cleansing from God, it humbles us in that we know we are nothing not deserving of forgiveness, but it also strengthens us, giving us confidence to serve because we know God is the one who has taken the initiative to call us to himself and provide a sacrifice that will bring forgiveness. The This is the implication of the imagery of the burning colonists from the, the altar of sacrifice. Without sacrifice, there was no forgiveness of sins. Israel offered sacrifices all the time, but those sacrifices were simply pointing forward to the great sacrifice that was to come. And even in the midst of their terrible sin, God says, even at the beginning of the book, forgiveness is still possible. I will still be gracious to you. God gives them a choice. Remain in your sins and perish or repent and be forgiven. Listen to what he says in chapter 1. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I confess, when I was little, there was very few times where we had any kind of a dark colored juice in the house. You know why? Because both me and my father are prone to spillage. Okay? Okay? or what they call the butterfinger. And instead of having the cup here and reaching for it like this, like you're supposed to, we reach for it like that, and kaboom, okay? And everybody knows when you've got real grape juice and it spills, what happens? It stains. Yes, someone from experience of a little mouth just said it stains. She knows, okay? And so just didn't have it around. And if we did have it, even if it was Kool-Aid, guess what? It stayed in the kitchen because tile was down, and it could be mopped up. Well, you know, even today with OxyClean and everything else or, or whatever, it does, it does not take much, does it? For a small splash, a little dribble, and the clothing goes into the play clothes bend. But here God says something far worse has stained our souls and it's sin. And that stain is indelible. It is a scarlet mark that has been left on our very souls. It doesn't matter how hard we scrub it with contrition and sorrow and good works and morality, we aren't able to clean it away. It is there forever. But God says, I can clean it. I can clean it off. I won't just paint over it. I won't just whitewash it. I won't just cover it up. I won't just get it to to kind of fade. I will cleanse you with such deep cleansing that now your sins be as scarlet. They will now be white as snow. The question we have to ask is, God, how are you going to do it? You just called your people Sodom and Gomorrah. How are you going to cleanse them like this? The answer that he gives at the end of the book is this, I will send my servant. My perfect servant who will not fail me, who will always do my will. And he will not offer an animal sacrifice. He will offer the sacrifice of himself. The servant is mentioned all throughout Isaiah, but it comes to climax in chapter 53. And God says this, my servant... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all several times throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers go over and over and over again to this chapter and they say, this was Jesus Christ. He is the one who came, perfectly able to be the servant of God, the mediator between God and man, both fully God and fully human, so that He could offer His life as an atonement for our sins. As He would hang on the cross and bear God's wrath against our sins, He made it possible for us to experience the kind of deep cleansing that we need when we repent. All of this now, all of this now, the scene of God's glory truly that leads to confession, which causes God to cleanse us deep, something that we cannot do. He forgives us for our sins. All of this now prepares us for the final step, and that is for us to accept God's difficult and hopeful commissioning. We must accept God's difficult and hopeful commissioning Isaiah has been given a vision of the glory of God and all of his sovereignty, of holiness, and this vision has brought him to the place where he is finally ready to take up God's commissioning. And God says, not to Isaiah, but to all of the heavenly host, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I know sometimes this is preached as if Isaiah goes and says, Me, I will go. It's, the, you know, it's kind of the, you know, give me ten good men and I'll take the castle kind of thing. It's a real heroic thing. Give me a break. The man has just been crushed to nothing under the weight of a holy God. He is on his face before God, only able to gaze up and see the very hem of the robe of the glory of God. He's not moving from this to the heroic stance. He hears the booming voice of God call out, having just been cleansed of his sins. Who shall go for us? I think what Isaiah says is, God, I'm here. Know about anybody else, but send me. I'll go. I see what you've done for me. I see your grace. I see the depth of my sin and the salvation you've given to me, but I don't deserve it. What can I do to serve you? Is the response of grateful, humble worship that says, I am ready to do, God, whatever you call me to do. But what is he called to do? He is called to preach. He is called to preach and to proclaim who God is in all of his glory. I once heard Sinclair Ferguson give a story that required a bit of a sanctified imagination. He was not saying it really happened, but he's saying, I can imagine something like this went down. He says, imagine that Christ has come, he has taken on flesh, he has lived his life, he has died, he has rose back from the dead, he has commissioned his disciples, and now he is off back to heaven. And as he enters back into the glories of the throne of God, all of the angels who have been astounded at the incarnation are rejoicing and singing praise, and then one of them says, okay, Jesus, we want to know now, how are you going to take this to the world? we've heard what the gospel message is, we've seen it, we've seen how you accomplish it. How are you going to get that so that all people may hear? And Jesus says, you see those 11 fishermen down there? Yeah, yeah, we we see them. That's my plan. Jesus, you got a plan B? I mean, I'm looking at those guys. I've seen what they've done the last three years. And Jesus says, I have no plan B. That's my plan. That's my only plan. And you see, that's, that's what Isaiah is getting at here. If you in the pew are like me in the pulpit, you know you are nothing. You are a nobody. You're not important in the grand scheme of this world. The only thing that is significant is that you have encountered a living God through Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that equips us to be able to go and to serve and to fulfill His mission by proclaiming the gospel. That and that alone. It's not because we're particularly gifted. It's not because we're particularly talented. It's not because we have a particular large bank account. It's simply this we have been with Jesus. And to the degree that that is true, then we will be able to follow in Isaiah's footsteps with this hard and difficult and yet hopeful task. It's hard because God says, you're going to go preach. And the effect of your preaching is going to be to so harden their hearts they will not turn and believe. you understand that? The preaching will harden their hearts. And so as the old Puritans used to say, the same son... That melts the ice, it bakes the clay. It takes it from the moldable, mushy thing and makes it hard like rock. When we preach the gospel today, what do we see happening? We tell some people, and they they crumble, they melt, they become broken before God, and they rejoice in the salvation that they have. And other people back up, and they close down, and they shut down, and they get hardened to the point where they say, Don't talk to me about Jesus anymore. And here God is saying very specifically, I say, I am using you to bring about judgment on my people. I am using you to so harden their hearts so that they will undergo the judgment that they deserve. And we we can see why. Isaiah asks, how long, O Lord? How long will I have to preach this way? And here is what the, the message comes back is. Until they go into exile. Until the armies come in and invade and carry them off into exile and judgment is complete. However, he says... Even in exile, though a tenth remain in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God tells Isaiah, I'm going to come in like a man with an axe and I'm going to start hacking apart my people, the tree of Israel. But just keep in mind this, the stump will remain. They will go into exile, they will be scattered, my people will die off, but I will preserve a remnant who will be faithful to me. And when you go to the end of chapter 10, and the beginning, and really all into chapter 11, you see this marvelous thing that the stump, he says, will be from that stump, from that holy stump, will come the holy seed of Jesse. Now, if you know the Bible up to this point. If you know the unfolding plan of God, you know who Jesse is. Jesse is the father of David. David is the line through which the Messiah will come. So here is God saying, I'm going to cleanse your sins through my servant, and that servant is going to come, because though I am going to all but wipe out my people, I will preserve them. And part of the line of people that I will preserve is the Lion of Judah. The root of Jesse, the son of David, he will come one day. He will come one day. And he will bring all things to completion. He will be the sacrifice so that even now I can cleanse you of your sin. We get to John chapter 12. And we see Jesus preaching and we see the Jews being hardened. Just like here. And the Apostle John quotes from Isaiah 53 and from our passage here in Isaiah 6. And he says this, Isaiah saw these things, the Lord of glory, high and exalted, the suffering servant who will come. He says he saw these things and he said these things because he saw the glory of Christ. So here's the amazing reality. When we see the Lord of glory in Isaiah 6, the high and exalted one, the Lord of hosts, John through the witness of the spirit says what Isaiah really saw, not just in Isaiah 53, but here in Isaiah 6 was Jesus Christ himself. He had a vision of the one who would come and be the perfect and save the perfect servant and save his people as God desires. This morning for us, the question is, have we come to behold the glory of Christ? Have we come to so behold Him that we are aware of the depth of our sin and that in that depth of sin we call out to God confessing it so that we can experience the divine deep cleansing that we must have in order to be able to serve Him. And if we have, then what's holding us back from saying, God, I know I'm a nobody, but here I am. Send me. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful, God, that... It's not through jumping through hoops that will prepare us to serve you. It's not by working hard in our own righteousness that will prepare us to serve you. It's not doing some religious duty that will bring forgiveness. Father, it is simply going and beholding you, knowing who you are through Christ. Father, that is what brings forgiveness and life. That is what brings a preparation for service to you. So, Father, I pray, not just this morning, but In the coming days and weeks that you will continue, God, to open our eyes to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.